Well, thank you very much, Brother Van Gilderen. I've never had the opportunity to be at this conference before, have been familiar uh, with it through Brother Billy and Christy Ingram, and uh, they've talked about it. I've always wanted to come, and especially the music is just renowned, and uh, I feel like the half has not been told and been able to come and, and enjoy it, and um, just seems like this is what God intended when it comes to music that honors Him, and I appreciate not only the direction, but the excellence of it as well. It's something that's close uh, to my heart, and so I'm glad to have finally be able to come and experience it firsthand. And I love the fact that it's called the Victory Conference. And I think I've, I've been set up just a little bit here in coming to the Victory Conference because I came here and, and I'm on the last week of what's called the Whole30 Diet. How many of you all know what the Whole30 Diet is? All right, the rest of you shouldn't bother at all. Don't even, <laughs> don't even get interested because it is not worth it. The 30 means 30 days. You know, that you have to keep the diet. And the whole means there's a whole lot of things you can't eat, is all that means for 30 days. And so I'm on the tail end of this. And so I, I come here to the, the conference and, and I'm wanting to keep this diet with everything because I've made it three weeks. If one more week and I've got it made. And so the first thing is, Brother Micah dangles this basket in front of me as soon as I show up. And it's got five different kinds of lint chocolate in it. Ritz peanut butter crackers, Nutter Butters, with an expiration date that's way out there. I mean, they were fresh. It's like, it's like the best kind of Nutter Butters. You know, in Stillwater, we just put the stuff that's gone out of date, you know, in those. And, and, uh, but these, these were like non-expired. And so, and, and then these, and then these like three packages of, of Jack Link's beef jerky that Sasquatch would kill for, you know, and, and so, man, I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, I, I really want to have it, I'd like to report at Victory Conference, I, I have started off in Victory already, because I haven't touched any of it to date so far, there wasn't anything in there I could have anyway, so I want to give it to Priscilla and Will and Gretchen, uh, so that I, I'm not tempted as much, so, I'm thankful to have victory over the basket so far. So I, I had a I had a good start. So I, I know it's deeper than that, but that was a big deal to me. Trust me. So, well, we're going to deal with this idea of still church, and let me give you a little bit of how this came about. Several years ago, I'd got out got out of high school and went directly to Bible college. And at that time, I, I went to Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. That's kind of the circle I grew up in. Uh, into the music program there, and then ended up, uh, after about a year and a half, going to work for Brother Davison in Stillwater, transferred to Oklahoma State, and uh, where I was able to be a music theory major and, and piano, and enjoyed that, but ultimately felt the call to go back to school and finish with a pastoral degree back to BBC. So I did, and I remember coming to graduation week, I was sitting there, and I was a preacher's kid. My father pastored in Tulsa for 30 years, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so a, a fellow preacher's kid, a little bit older than I was, was preaching on one of the nights the day before graduation. During the message, he comes towards the end of it, and he points to his aging father, who was just finishing, finishing up a lot of pastoring. And he points to him out in the congregation and says, Dad... I'd love to thank you for giving me the freedom to change my methodologies every 10 to 20 years. And he was grateful that his father had given him that freedom. And I wanted to stand up right after that because something started stirring in front of me. And my father was back a few rows behind me. I wanted to stand up and turn around and point to my aging father and say, Dad, Thank you for giving me a methodology that doesn't have to be changed every 10 or 20 years. Because a lot of the pressures were there to adapt to the methodologies. And there, there are certain reasons and validations for change, but not near as many as are being claimed necessary in this day and time. So it started to be born out of that as I tried to do my own study and research as to what, what really dictates 
uh, what a, a church is and how do you deal with the methodologies. And as a young pastor, I needed some direction in how to navigate those waters. And then after pastoring for a while, I wanted a, a way for our members to articulate what it was that made them different from every other church in town. We're the only independent Baptist church in Stillwater, a town of about 50,000, home of Oklahoma State University. A few, not mega churches per se, life churches is there, and, and a few other churches certainly. But, you know, I noticed that everyone in town was basically doing everything they could to keep from looking like a church. And they, they, were, they were open about it. They were blatant about it. That come here, it's not like your father's church. Or it's not like church. And we sensed an opportunity to do everything we could to tell them we do look like church. We, we are a church. And so it was interesting how that happens. Because in every other church's desire to be different, they ended up all looking the same. Which made us look different. And we didn't even have to change a thing. I, I thought, this is great how, how this works. So I wanted our folks to have a, a way to articulate that, that they could understand and that they could illustrate to others. And so we chose a, a couple different domains that Still Church operates in. One is realizing what generation of church we are still in. If you're going to say Still Church then you're saying it's a continuation of what? Well, we like to say we're not trendy as in six months ago, but nor are we old-fashioned as in 60 years ago. We're timeless as in 2,000 years ago. We use the term old-fashioned. I'm not against the term old-fashioned, but anymore it conjures up that, that basically we are trying to be what churches were 60 years ago. That's not my target. My target is the church we've been studying in the book of Acts, the kind of church that is. And so we chose six particular steals at that time, and we've worked with others along the way, and that is still preaching, still hymns, still reverent, still men, still family, and still exciting. Because a lot of people feel like you can't have exciting services if you're going to be reverent or if you're still going to at least utilize some hymns. If I could read uh, basically what our, kind of our, our statement, our working statement is uh, here in the way that we choose to convey this to the community. We said this, still church, timeless or trendy? Malls are trendy. Churches should feel timeless. With the forceful current of constant change, Sweeping over every part of our lives, people have the need to connect with something enduring and firm. We believe Christ designed the church to fulfill that need by representing an eternal kingdom and ageless truth with no need to imitate the culture. We want you to know that there's still a church that feels like a church. It won't feel like a rock concert, comedy club, or motivational seminar. It's not old-fashioned as in 60 years ago. It is timeless as in 2,000 years ago. That's kind of the heart of Still Church. I think you have in your notes there a working definition. Still Church is an absolute confidence in the power of proven biblical methodologies rather than a dependence on unproven trends and novelty. Be clear on this part. It is not a rejection of new or creative as much as it is ensuring that these reinforce rather than replace the timeless. The problem is not always what a young man adds. It's that he's not simply adding, he is replacing. And when you begin to replace the timeless methodologies that have been given in the Word of God, that begins to be dangerous territory. Still church represents a commitment to emphasizing what is timeless in each ministry in contrast to what is either trendy or simply old-fashioned. So I want to deal with some mindsets this morning, just six mindsets or principles, we might say, that enable us to remain a timeless church in a trendy culture. They are mindsets designed not just to tell us what to think, but help us know how to think. 
and how to navigate the waters because there are going to be more changes and more challenges come along, especially at the rate of change that we have in the culture today. And so I want to walk through each of these mindsets and take just a few moments uh, on each of these. Turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. With each of these, we'll at least give a, a verse that we can understand a little bit of a process. So on number one, process determines product. Process determines product. Our process will reflect our intent to end up with disciples. The Great Commission is not exclusively seeing someone saved. That's part of it. And it's not seeing someone baptized. That's part of it. The Great Commission has not been accomplished until we end up with someone who is willing to observe everything that Jesus commanded them to do. That's when the Great Commission is accomplished, and it's not fully accomplished until you end up with that particular product. We don't have the option of choosing our product as a church. Our product, if I can call it product in a sense, is something that is produced, has been determined for us by Jesus Christ when he gave the church this mandate that you are supposed to take consumers and end up with disciples. And if that's the product that you want, it affects the process that you use. You determine the product, and then you design the right process to create that product. And when I say that create, we know that that's, as we've learned this week and have heard reiterated this week, that process is something that God himself does. We simply become tools that follow the, the biblical patterns by which he, that he empowers to bring about that process. Now, the way this happens unintentionally is that you just do some process that you like and that you think works and that is largely pragmatic, and then it determines the product. That's primarily what happens today in many, in many circles. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So a man comes along and he, he says, this is what, this looks good. This seems like it works. This is a great process, but you don't get to pick the product when you pick the process. You pick a particular process, it is going to produce a given product. And you don't get to work the way that seems right to you and then get to the end and say, this is the product that I want. You decided that when you picked the process. Take the idea of the military. We've had boys that have left Bible Baptist Church to go join the military, and they came back men. Why? Because the military designs a process for the product they're after. They want, they want a fighting machine. They want a, a man who is able to handle battle and the pressure of battle, and they know a lot of the scenarios that he's going to face in the future. And so you go to boot camp, and not everything that you do in boot camp is designed to teach a man just how to shoot a weapon. I mean, it's, it's crazy that I've not been to boot camp, but it's crazy the stories that you hear about how seemingly unrelated so many little pieces are that they say it's all part of the process to turn them into good soldiers in the end. Things that they would say, why am I doing this? This seems to make no sense whatsoever. It's a process designed for the product that they are after. And their process is, is perfectly suited for the product that they want. As a musician, I, I'm currently after a product called Rachmaninoff Prelude in G minor. And it doesn't, it's not, for my level, it's not easy at all. And so if I want that product, I can't just dream about it. I can't just listen to some good recordings and say, man, I, I think I could do that. I remember one time having a professor at Oklahoma State, it, I was playing a particular piece and he said, he said, now I want you to play the piece. And he put the lid of the piano down over the keys. And I said, oh, yes, sir. So I lifted up the lid and started playing it. And he said, no, I said, play the piece. And he put the lid down. And so I said, yes, sir, I will. So I lifted the lid and started trying to play the piece. And so he said, I want you to play the piece. And he slammed the lid down. 
And I'm getting pretty confused by this time. And I start to lift the lid up and he, and he puts his hand down and he says, no, leave the lid down. Play on top of the lid. And I thought, this guy's wacko. <laughs> but he wasn't, so I'm, I'm playing this piece on top of the lid. And, and then he says, now, w- what did you hear? I said, well, it sounded perfect. <laughs> and so he said, now you have your standard. Now lift the lid and play it, you know, like that. Well, you know, I learned real fast it doesn't work like that. You know, that was going to happen in, that was going to happen in the practice rooms. And so there, you have to have a process to get the product that you want. You can't just say, I want this product in the end. As a church, our product is disciples, committed believers to Jesus Christ. And you can't just pick out whatever bit of pragmatism comes along and say, that's the process that I like because you are beginning with consumers. And the product is getting them to become a true disciple, obedient to everything he commanded. So you can't produce disciples with a process designed by consumers. That, that, that's the air that they breathe. They come into church bringing the same brain that has been conditioned out there by their cell phones and by television and by the entertainment industry that caters to them all along the way. It, it is amazing to me how consumer-oriented the whole culture is, even flying here. I was reminded of the difference in flying in the last 10 to 15 years. It used to be when they said, please do not congregate in the aisles. Please do not congregate around the lavatories. For the freshmen in the room, that's the bathroom on the airplane. Don't congregate around the lavatories. They say that, but they don't enforce it anymore. They'll say, uh, put your your cell phone in airplane mode. And it used to be, you know, the the flight attendants were like trained Gestapo to be sure that you followed every one of these rules. But now it's like, no, they're consumers. We don't want to disappoint them. We don't want to upset them because we will lose them. And all along the way, it, it, it's like they, they are so used to having their own way. And, and the church is not designed to work that way. I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 14 when, when Paul was dealing with the idea, um, the truth of the problem with edification in the Corinthian church was tongues at the time. And so when he realizes, all right, listen, you're, you're coming in like consumers. Every one of you hath a psalm and hath a doctrine and, and you, you have something, you have a tongue, you have something that you want to say and you have something that you want to say. And because tongues was appropriate at the time, he says, all right, here's how we're going to do it. It's going to be one or two and that by course, and then there must be an interpreter. But it's interesting what he says in the next verse. Basically, he says, if you're not going to do it that way, then you'll keep silence. And someone said, well, man, who does he think he is? Well, in a church, we're not just every man does that which is right in his own eyes. We're after disciples. And even Paul says there, we're going to have some guidelines and we're going to have some rules and there's a particular way because in all the, the churches of the saints, things are done decently and in order and it's important enough to us that we are going to enforce some rules, some guidelines of what it takes to do good ministry. Consumers don't like that. But that's part of what it takes to create a disciple. Consumers want to play whatever music they want, wear what they want, and show up when they want. If you're going to be still church, you have to design a process to produce disciples. My daughter graduated from high school last year and and, um, joined a cult. And it's called (laughs) Chick-fil-A. She did. And she goes to Chick-fil-A, and they tell her what to wear. Now, they weren't gracious enough to uh, allow for some femininity there, but they tell her what to wear, when to show up. They tell her what to say, how to say it, when to say it. They even tell her the kind of nail polish that she cannot wear, which was, that was hard on a, on a girly girl like her. And people tell me that if you do those things, then that's, I mean, they tell you that's what a cult is. So, you know, the Chick-fil-A cult is there. But you know what? They have a process because they care about their product. That's how much they care about chicken. 
And yet we care about an eternal truth and the Word of God. And yet we get scared of consumers. I, I don't know. I don't know if we can do that. That'll, that will scare off people. Listen, brothers, the biblical methodologies are not optional. It doesn't matter who they scare off. Our process is going to determine our product, and because our product has been mandated by Jesus Christ, we must have a process that turns consumers and disciples instead of letting consumers drive the show instead. Second, mindset principle number two. Kingdom over culture. Kingdom over culture. We reflect a timeless kingdom more than a trendy culture. You just think of the, the truth of 1 Timothy 3.15, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And he's conveying to him, when you, when you step through the doors, when you come into this place, this is the house of God. And he clarifies, this is the church he's talking about and, and realize that when you step into this place, it's not, it's not Chick-fil-A, it's not McDonald's, it's not Walmart. It is the house of God, the church of the living God. And it reflects and stands for and, and provides the, the, the foundation, the pillar and foundation of the truth, of divine truth. This completely different place in culture than any place else. And a place that God has His name. And He says it works different in here. I'm writing to you so that you know that when you go to that place, there's a behavior that's different and the rules change. Those we are trying to reach are so saturated with the culture. Because it is a consumer culture, everywhere they look reflects themselves. This is a narcissistic culture, self-absorbed as much as it can be. And again, their brains are literally rewired by the dopamine rush of novelty and things are constantly changing and there's no permanence at all. And it's amazing how it is reflected in, in basically every institution that feeds the culture novelty. I had my wife and I had a, a friendly disagreement when I said to her after she had shopped a couple times and gotten the shampoo that I've used for years and years and years, same shampoo. And two times in a row, she got the wrong shampoo. And so we talked about it. I said, honey, I've used the same shampoo for a long time. And, and uh, can you just take a picture of it and take it to Walmart and get that particular shampoo? And she was kind about it, as she always is. And, and I sensed that there was some difficulty. And I'm thinking, how difficult can this be? You know, so I, I happened to be at, at uh, Walmart and so I went and thought, I'm going I'm to pick up my shampoo. So I go to the shampoo aisle, and 20 minutes later, I am so confused. <laughs> I have a picture, and I'm looking for it. 20 minutes later, I find it. But it looks totally different. It's the same shampoo. In fact, they put a label on it that says, same product, new look. I thought, I don't want a new look. And then it dawned on me, the new look they're talking about is the bottle of shampoo. I thought, I don't buy shampoo for the way the bottle looks. I buy shampoo the way my hair looks. That's what I'm after. <laughs> and yet that works. That's why they do it. We, we've just got to change the way that it looks because then people fall for it. That's how, that's how shallow our society is. They're consumers and they have to have a shot of dopamine all along the way. But what a great opportunity we have, therefore. Because we represent something permanent and enduring, that at its root, at its base, at its foundation, doesn't change. We are representative of a God who existed before any of this existed and will exist long after it's gone. We use a book that contains the essence of man's existence from the very beginning to the very end. And we celebrate events that are based on thousands of years ago and thousands of years in the future, or at least 1,000 years in the future, depending on when he returns. That's the truth that we represent and that we deal with. It, it's, it's a kingdom. It, it's, it's timeless. It is eternal in a culture that is everything but that. And we have an opportunity to represent a kingdom to a culture. We're blessed because we don't have to target this age. 
We don't have to target any cultural subgroup. We don't even have to target this century. We represent something so much greater. We are striving for a deeper relevance than just relevant to a culture. We want to help them see that relevance to something that is eternal, not just represent what they came out of. They should realize immediately when they step into our churches that they're stepping out of the trendy and since I'm in the timeless now. This is different. You've just entered into the culture of God and kingdom. Things will be different in here from now on. I got in late Monday and was coming pulling into the service about 7.45 and it was dark and I hadn't been here before and and so I, I pulled off of I think 41, is that on the Appleton or 175, whatever it is. And I, I remember pulling around and I'm trying to look at my GPS at the same time and figure out, you know, where, where am I going? And as soon as I rounded that corner, I knew where I was headed. Because of all of these buildings that I saw, there was this steeple. You know, and I'm, it's not rocket science, but I thought that looks like a church. And somehow that sets itself apart from everything else. I'm not saying that it has to be a, a steeple. We're the, the same way. I wanted something that made a statement that, hey, this is different. And steeple's been around for a long time. And, and again, not the, the point that that's a biblical methodology. But it tells people there's something different about this building. That it, even, even our properties can, can say at least something can make a statement. They can still be nice and they can be modern, but they can make a statement. This is different. They ought to be able to come in and, and our music reflect the fact that, listen, we're not just about this culture. We're not just about this time that our, our music can be a, a wonderful mix of, as I've heard here, wonderful mix of old and new so that we're not just letting them live with the fact that we are part of this culture, but we represent something that goes way back and is a thread of believers a hundred, two hundred, five hundred, a thousand years ago and things that will also last. Our programs need to reflect a timeless kingdom more than a trendy culture. And a trendy culture should not determine the shape or meaning of a timeless kingdom. How cheap is that? When you have a timeless kingdom that you represent, the worship will reflect the worshipped more than the worshiper. It will reflect his attributes more than their tastes. I was talking... Brother Daniel last night about the fact that one of the things that our church enjoys is the idea of the two audiences. Because over and over and over, you find in the scripture, we don't think much about it, but it says, sing unto the Lord. Now, for example, if you were to look in Exodus 14, you would find that it says statements like this, and God said unto Moses. The word unto there is pretty interesting because it establishes the from and the to. So the from was God, the to was Moses. God wasn't speaking about Moses, he was speaking to Moses. And then it says Moses spake unto God. And so that means that Moses is in the from position and God put himself in the to position. And so Moses is speaking and God is listening. And then it says the children cried out unto unto the Lord. That means that here's the children of Israel, they're in the from position. And then the unto established that the Lord is in the to position and then it even talks about the Lord spake unto the people through Moses and, and so God's in the from position. And I know that seems so simplistic, but then you get to chapter 15 and in the first verse it says, Then sang the children this song unto the Lord, which means they're in the from position. And it is amazing to me that God puts himself in the two position of our music, it makes him the audience. And so I've challenged our people, I said, church, when we, come to, when we come to a service on Sunday morning, there's two audiences. During the first half, God is the audience. During the second half, man is the audience. Because man is the audience of preaching. Preaching is the God-ordained method in order to reach men. And yet you find in the scripture that, that God sets himself aside. He's seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And during that time, I think we lose sight of the fact that God has put himself in a position to listen to our worship. And it's been, a, it's been helpful to say to them, listen, the music here does not exist to prepare for the preaching. That makes it man-centered again. 
But if during the music, every person in the pew can get a hold of the fact that God is my audience, and he's the primary audience. We know that singing to one another, that's, that's biblical as well. And to a congregation, we understand all that. But you cannot deny the fact, biblically, he's the primary audience. And that if during a song service, you can help people communicate with their God when the preaching comes, friend, they are prepared. When we recognize the timelessness and the kingdom, and that we're going to reflect that more than the culture, it will reflect the attributes of the one worshipped more than the tastes of the worshiper. Let's go to mindset number three. Principle number three. The trend behind the trends. The trend behind the trends. The benefit of, adi- of identifying cultural trends will be to discern deeper heart trends. We, we have a Bible... That, that gives a whole new meaning to being cutting edge. The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marred as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We have a book that is able to penetrate down into the very heart and soul of a man. Churches are, tracing, are chasing the trends with such passion to woo the consumer. They're transforming their ministries to keep up with their trends. Last night, I, I did just a few more searches to see what are the latest trends and how they are affecting churches. And it's amazing how trends are molding the ministries more than the Word molds a lot of ministries. For example, streaming is all the rage. I enjoyed Dr. Jim talking last night about, all right, on Monday nights, you watch this. And Tuesday nights, you watched this back when, when we were kids. And I, I was there. I, I understood the, the $6 million man and all those things. And I mean, those were you watched and you watched it, you know, when they came on because that's the only time you'd get to see it. That's not the way it is now. You don't watch a particular show at a particular time. You, if, if, you, if you watch any of it, you stream it or the culture, it's, it's all about streaming. I want it when I want it wherever I want it, on whatever device I want it on at any time. And you can stream it whenever you want, and it's such a, because of a radical individualization, Robert Bort called it. And so churches are providing more of their services this way. And not, not that the, the streaming part be wrong, I'm just saying that the trends have come to a point where a lot of churches are taking it where we don't even care if you show up. Because you can just watch it. On, you can watch on your computer, you can watch it on your device, and the problem is not streaming at all. The problem is that when you trade that for assembling yourselves together so you can provoke one another into love and to good works. And so it ought to tell us that when we see the trends, we need to follow the trends, just not the same way they do. We don't follow them and that they mold us. They follow them in order to draw in the consumer. We use them another way. We use them because the Word of God tells us what goes on in the heart of a man. And every trend that comes along is an outward expression of some inward condition. That the Word of God helps us understand. We can use the trends to reveal the deeper trends in men's hearts. That's why that the trends may look so different today than they were 300 years ago, but man hasn't changed. The need and expression in a man's heart is the same in the heart, and the sinfulness is the same in the heart. It's just going to express it different at different times. Once we see what is going on on the outside, the Bible tells us what's going on on the inside. And then we can address it without having to follow trends. Our strength is not following them to repeat them. It is helping people see what the real need is that a trend seems to address. For example, casual. We all know dressing down is all the rage. Sloppy is in. And churches cater to this. You know, it's one thing to accept it. It's another thing to promote it. Honestly, in Stillwater College Town... Uh, I, I, in fact, I remember a particular story just just came to mind. I, I got to the invitation of a uh, after a message 
And I looked out and I saw something I'd never seen before. There was this, there was this woman with uh, hair down to her waist and she was standing backwards in the pew during the invitation. And I thought, now I've seen some strange things, but I have not encountered that before. And so that, that, was, you know, that was when I had their heads bowed and, and all of that and she was turned around backwards and and, uh, and then we got to the point of, of singing the invitation, and, and I, I said, you know, raise your head, and, and uh, if God's dealt in your heart, then give him a, a response that he deserves. And well, then it dawned on me what, it, what was actually happening. This, this woman wasn't turned around in the back. It was somebody that had put their head down, and it was a man. And he put his head down, and his hair, kind of like the thing... You know, had, had uh, or or whatever it is on that old old Adams family. I don't remember which one it is, but put his and his hair had come all the way around, and it looked like somebody was standing backwards in the pew. And so he lifted up his head, and his hair parted, and I thought, "Whoa, that's that is different, right? That's that's interesting." You know what was fascinating? As soon as the service ended, and he he had come in shorts, he's in a t-shirt, you know, just, just dressed down completely. Man, our people just flocked to Nick, and and realizing that. That's, that's not an issue. That's not a problem. But it is, it's a whole different scenario to promote instead of accept. That's a, that's a big difference. And the idea is that, you know, what, what does it reveal? We have to realize what, it's not necessarily the, the casual trend that we're supposed to adapt to. It is taking the casual trend and figuring out what is the trend behind that trend? What, what's going on here? Because Jesus, our God dealt with that, the Father dealt with that through Malachi, when he says, you know, you're, you're providing me the worst that you have in sacrifices. And he gave credibility to the idea or the comparison, go offer that to your governor and see what he thinks of that. And God uses that, that reasoning, makes it adequate for us to use that. I don't know how many times somebody has said to me, you know, why are you all dressed up when you... You know, when you, go to, when you go to church, and I remember reading something by a, an author one time, and he was a professor, a college professor, and he went, he says, I went to the funeral, and he's a lost man, by the way. He said, I went to the funeral of a colleague, another professor, and there were a lot of college students there, and at, you know, it's a funeral, and they were all dressed down, and uh, some of the college students were making fun of him, and, you know, and said, Mr. Dalrymple, why, you know, why, are, why are you all dressed up? He's dead, and he, he doesn't even know it. He said, well, I didn't dress up for him. I dressed up so that you would know what he means to me. That's why I dressed up. We have this, the mentality that it, even in God's saying the comparison matters, people will say, I don't know why you, you dress up. People just don't dress up anymore. And I say, you know, that's interesting. I just came out of a men's warehouse. And Joseph A. Banks. I mean, went to Dillard's and they still have a very large section of suits and ties and dress shirts and dress shoes and, and, and the ladies section I'm saying, you know, I realize this is a, a trend, but the fact is people still dress up for things that are extremely important. And it reveals a heart that expects God to accept whatever we offer. Now, if we're talking about coming to Jesus Christ, he accepts us as we are. But we might not want to promote that idea when it comes to God the Father. Because he says there's only one way you approach me, and that's through Jesus Christ. No man comes to the Father but by me. And yet, remember, our process determines our product. And so if we say, hey, approach God any way that you want to, don't think that that brain is going to separate it just from dress, but then how they're going to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. That process may not compute when it's inconsistent in such a way. So there's a difference in acceptance and promotion. Conditions them in thinking we could approach Him. So take the trends... And, and be above the trends by knowing what does the Bible say about them and instead of adapting to them, use the Bible to deal with them and use them to reveal what actually is going on in the heart. Mindset philosophy number four. Number four. This one takes a little bit of explanation, but it's, it's fascinating to me just in some study that that I've done. If you want to write down 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, you'll be familiar with those when he talks about preaching the word and being instant in season and out of season. Reprove, 
rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. He says, there's going to come a time that's not what they want. And the temptation is going to be to then change the methodology that you use, the biblical methodology, and try to find something that they will accept. And I learned something about this when I was, I was reading a, a book by a couple, I guess they're, you might call them philosophers of, of a sort, business philosophers, last name Boyd and Goldenberg, and, and they were talking about what's called inside the box. Inside the box, I was fascinated by this, and I realized, man, this is, this is actually nothing new. This is something that, that we benefit from because our creativity will prioritize timely ways to build around biblical methodology. So they, they come up with these scenarios, and they said, all right, so here, you're in a rental car, and you have a flat. Let's say you're in the desert. You have a, a flat in this rental car, and the lug nuts are too rusted for you to get them off with the wrench. And so you're trying to figure out, what do I do? Well, here's what your options are not. You have no cell phone to call for help. You have none of that foam spray to temporarily inflate the tire. You don't have a piece of pipe to extend the the leverage on, on the wrench itself. You can't hitch a ride to the nearest service station and, and they call of those, all of those solutions are basically outside the box because when you're in that scenario, all you have is what you have. And you don't have all of these other ways to gain something outside the box to provide you with a solution. So what do you do? And they, they put students through these exercises and they're, what they're trying to teach them is creativity. And so a lot of people, in order to be creative... They immediately turned outside the box. And their proposal is, no, you are actually more creative when you stay inside the box. And you try to figure out, how do I use what I have? And, and so let's say that you're limited to what you have in the car itself. You have to be creative. So the solution the authors found, the students eventually came up with, and they were always excited, is that you put the lug wrench on the lug... And then instead of jacking the car up, you take the jack that you have and you put it under the lug wrench and you use that pressure to loosen each of the lug wrenches and then you take the jack and you put it under the car and you, and, and you, and you pump it up. And, and so the, the students are like, oh, wow, and they begin to see it. That's real creativity. Being able to use your cell phone to call a record, that's not creative. You know, I mean, that's, that may be obvious, but it's not creative if you're trying to be creative. That's different. So we're, we're really challenging, in this one, we're really challenging one of the today's single biggest myths about creativity in churches, that it requires outside-the-box thinking. They call it the closed-world system. It's based on the idea that you look inward rather than outward, and that this propels you towards the virgin territory of truly creative ideas that are both original and useful. They have convincing evidence that the further away the resource, the less creative the solution it generates. They borrow the limited scope principle from some different fields that says by limiting the number of variables under consideration from infinity to a finite number, we amplify our potential to come up with a creative solution because the limits boost the creative process. For us, inside the box is this. This is our box. And it has some methodologies in it that have been proven for a very long time. And they can be used in season and out of season. And they're still effective even when people decide that's not what I want. That's not what I really want to listen to. That is not going to help me. If I asked you this question, how would you answer it? Has one innovation added power to the church in 2,000 years? Has any single innovation added power to the local church in 2,000 years? You might say, well, the printing press obviously did. Are you sure you're ready to argue they had less power before 1450? Obviously, that was, that was a, a, a great step forward. But it didn't increase the power of God's Word. It didn't increase the power... Of, of the Holy Spirit, that, that, has, that has been the same. 
There has been no innovation. So why would we look to innovation as the next big thing in order to provide what has always been available before there was any innovation of the modern sense? We have these tools inside the box. Preaching, prayer, hymns, spirit-filled male leadership, gathering together weekly, We could go on and on and on, all of which are mandated by the Scripture. And we can use these proven methodologies and we can still be creative. But we're simply not having to go outside the box to be creative. So many of the young fundamentalists are going outside the box and calling it creativity. You know what you're going to find? It's It's not innovation at all. It's imitation. They're not coming up with anything new. It's just, a, it's just it's ideas that are finding their way among independent Baptists that the evangelicals have been doing for a long time. I read a book here recently, fascinating book, by a liberal evangelical called The Juvenilization of American Christianity. And he's, I mean, he's, he's self-deprecating basically because he draws this whole line of of how the youth work of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because we were so scared of starting to lose our youth as the youth culture grew, then they started trying all of these different practices that were outside the traditions of local churches, and their meetings would be were outside of the, the walls of the local church. And so he goes back and he talks about how many practices of today's primary churches, primary practices in regular churches came from the youth ministries of 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he says it has actually juvenilized our our Christianity. Our Christianity has become shallow. That's because we started this in youth work and created these subcultures. We're not talking about being against youth groups and those kinds of things, not at all. He's just an evangelical that's willing to be more honest than most of them and say we did all this creativity outside the box, and now all of our churches are paying for it. Instead, And we have to be careful that, that we realize, hey, creativity is great, but let's, let's start with the proven methodologies. And let's figure out, I mean, how, how can we use preaching in this way and, and that way? And how can we use music? I love hearing some of the ways that you've used the power of music and how you've been able to use some music that's God-honoring in, in a lot of different ways. In Stillwater, we have uh, coming up in a couple months what's called the Men's Advance. And we'll draw about 17, 1800 men and we will start months in advance and we design every point meticulously and step by step along the way and we have to choose speakers that, that actually we're not the greatest speakers but we do the speaking ourselves just so that we can make the points that we want to make. And then after the preaching sessions in a way to our to help practice James chapter 1 about not just being hearers of the word but being doers then we work through the steps of how do you take this truth and what does it look like on Monday? And we work through those truths in these practice and practical sessions. And then we take those, and which, by the way, I forgot the first point, that is basically a formula of three words. Content drives everything. That's the formula for men's events. Content drives everything. And so we create this 6,000 square foot maze that every section of the maze is driven by a particular session, a preaching session, that is, that is illustrated in daily life in the particular way that it affects a man. And so a man kind of walks through his life in this huge room within a room that enables him to see the, the truths fleshed out. We don't have to compromise to do that. The preaching is driving everything. The truths of the Word of God applied on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday basis ends up driving everything. And we have found that it works. Men men feel like, hey, this this is life-changing, and it didn't have to be some moving to entertainment. Yeah, these guys show up, and they sit in the same chair for hours. No breakout sessions, nothing. Just they sit there for six hours and, and listen to people preach to say that doesn't work and to say, we've we've got to go outside the box. Maybe we're... We're selling the Word of God short and the biblical methodologies and the power that they can convey. Number five. Number five. The gain-loss principle. The gain-loss 
principle. This one's so significant. We will calculate profit using both gain and loss, resisting the temptation to consider gain alone. Jesus taught a very important lesson when he said, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? He's talking about this man that looked at what he had to gain, and he was enamored by it. And he looked at it, and it was a huge gain. And it really was. I mean, Jesus is trying to convey that when he says he can gain the whole world. So meaning there was this significant amount the man had to gain. The problem is he didn't calculate, what do I lose? And profit simply equaled gain to him. And then he realized his net profit was a loss. You cannot calculate profit unless you take gain minus loss. We begin to think that profit is determined by gain alone. It isn't. We have to be wise enough. We have to be discerning through the Word of God and the, and the influence and illumination of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and how it helps us. We have to be wise and discerning enough to ask ourselves, all right, yes, there is a gain here, but what is the loss? You ever decided you were going to have some gain by trying to get to a, a meeting quick enough and you decided to speed? And you thought, I'm going, to, this is, I'm going to get there on time. And then $300 later? You're, you're $300 poor and you were 30 minutes late. And, and a, you know, there's, there's potential gain there, but you didn't calculate the loss. There was a considerable loss there. You study lottery winners lately? Billy Bob Harold. Billy Bob, that's a good lottery winner name right there. Harold <laughs> won $31 million in Texas in 1997. $31 million. Reported immediately that he thought God had blessed him. 20 months later, he put a shotgun to his chest after leaving this note. Winning the lottery is the worst thing that ever happened to me. He only saw the gain until he realized this was not profitable. He didn't calculate the loss. Ralph Stebbins, $208 million in Michigan in 2005. 20 months later with him, charged, he was charged with attempted murder and possession. Two months later, died of a heart attack at age 43. Oh, what gain that was until you subtract the loss and realize there was no profit. Jack Whitaker, $315 million in West Virginia in 2002. Believed God had intervened. One month later, arrested for drunk driving. Over $500,000 stolen from his car. Arrested for threatening the life of a bar manager. His 17-year-old granddaughter overdosed in his house and not long after that bounced $1.5 million in checks gambling. It's a life of lottery winners. They gain the whole world and they lose their own soul. I want to say to the young men in the college here, one of the greatest mistakes you could make in modern ministry is to only look at the gain. Those of us who have been around a while, we need to be careful in what we say to these young men sometimes and say, that'll never work. Well, it does, depending on what you're trying to reach as your product. You say, it'll never work, but then they're saying, but they're flocking into the sanctuary with these new methods. They do. There is gain. They do things that people respond to, and there's no doubt, but as young men get pragmatic, and they're looking for the gain, and there is gain. There, there are endless ways to fill up a sanctuary. But here's the problem. The glitter of the gain can be so blinding that we're not able to see the loss, or we're not willing to consider the loss. And there's so many ideas and so much technology and there's so much that comes along that gives us an opportunity. Well, we could, we could fill this up and we could have more money this way and, and we could have more uh, access to us on social media this way. And, and not all of those things necessarily would have to be bad. It would, be, would not be bad. 
And yet when we simply look at what is the the gain and what does it produce and we don't ask ourselves, what about the loss in the end? I'm not trying to get on on hobby horses at all. I think we have lost the ability to talk about some of these things that if you you bring certain things up, it's like like you're some wild-eyed conservative or radical just because you, you bring them up. And I really think we ought to be able to have discussions about all kinds of things because Paul, Paul said, I don't make every decision based on, on what was lawful. I make some decisions based on what's expedient and what's profitable. And we need to be able to talk about some of these issues without, without going into the ditch on either side of the road, which, by the way, is a great principle. It's been a great help in my life to realize just because I'm so scared of that ditch over there and worried about that one, there have been times in my life that trying to avoid that ditch, I've backed into this one over here. Last night was a great illustration of that, that self-dependence is one ditch, but then while we're trying to really trying hard to avoid that one, and then we end up in self-indulgence. Or there are some people that, that are, they can see self-indulgence, there's no way I'm ever going to be there, and then they back into self-dependence. It's like Peter when Jesus was washing his feet. Oh no, can't wash any of me. And then Jesus says a few words and then it's like, okay, you got to wash all of me. And, and Peter, he's good for going from ditch to ditch. And he can be very profound, but he'd be in one ditch. I'll never forsake thee. And the next thing you know, he's just weeping and crying because he's, he's forsaken the Lord. And we tend to do that. And we really ought to be honest about those ditches. But we, we need to have the freedom to discuss some of these things. I've challenged our church. I'm only using this as an example, not trying to necessarily instruct you at all, obviously. But I've challenged our folks, listen, bring your actual Bible to church. I don't know that it's going, I don't think there's as much gain as we think in in having, you know, the the Bible on our iPad and bringing that to church. That that word holy Bible means other than, and I'm not sure that you're going to look at the Bible the same if, if it's the same device that you use everything else on. And... And, I, and, and the Bible doesn't, it doesn't say you can't do this or thou shalt not do that. But we need to be willing to consider, okay, there are some gains. But what are the losses? You know, whether you're talking about it and how we use screens or how we use technology. You know, one of the greatest helps to me in, in a philosophy of technology was borrowed from something that Paul taught Timothy. He said to Timothy, he said, Timothy, be careful that you lay hands on no man suddenly. You, you're, you're trying to convince people that you represent eternal bedrock truth. And so be careful that you don't end up with egg on your face. And so I kind of adopted that to lay hands on no technology suddenly. It's been a great help. You know, there's no next big thing that I have to have that's going to add power, that's going to transform the ministry. Maybe it can be a help down the road. I don't know. But I'm not jumping in until I have time for people to come out and say, okay, here's the gains, but here's the losses. I represent God's truth. And if I'm leading people into the losses because I only saw the gains, my credibility starts to go down. I need to be able to come into a place like this and know, man, they, they have a knack for seeing both. They know the gains, but we're not going to be blinded by gain because profit cannot be determined by gain alone. We have to look at the loss. And then last, last mindset. I know this would be obvious, but methods matter. Methods matter. I invite your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll finish with this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul has has made it clear. I I don't want to know any, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified in verse 2. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, but verse 4 and 5 has been a great help for a lot of years. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he deals with the whole idea of of that it, it was all about Christ. And it wasn't even, he didn't even just say, I determined that you wouldn't know anything but Jesus Christ. 
He says, I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ because if Paul is straight, that Christ is everything, that's going to leak out all over everybody that he's preaching to and and his preaching will be right on that it is all about Christ. And he knew that this message was so important, but then he begins to deal with methodology. And he, he recognizes that there were two sources for presenting this message of Christ. The message is Christ, But even though the message was Christ, he said, I have two options for how to present that message. And if I could portray them as doors, let's say this is door number one, and this is door number two. And so door number one are enticements. He said, I could have come to you with enticements. That's door number one. One of the neat things about enticements is it's always full. Behind door number one, man, you open that up and you have a plethora of stuff to choose from in ways to present the message of Christ. It's constantly being refreshed. It's constantly being updated. It embraces the the latest ideas and the latest technologies, and and it's it's quick to get rid of last year's model. And they're because they're not enticing anymore after a little while. That's that's why it's called enticing. It has to stay new. But door number two is the spirit and power. But here's the thing, you don't open the door and find the spirit and power. You find the tools that enables Christ to demonstrate the spirit and the power through you. And every time you open this door, you basically find the same things. You find a Bible. You find prayer. You find preaching. You find a local church. You find those timeless methodologies. And so you have door number one of enticements. You have door number two of the spirit and the power. He says, my my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. So he says, I didn't choose door number one. I chose door number two. But then he tells us why. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why? Because it's not just a saying that old-time preachers say to us. It's literally a justification for what you get them with, you have to keep them with. He says, the methods I use affects where your faith stands in the end. Because if I pull from enticements, that's where your faith is going to be. If I pull from over here, it's a whole different story. And Paul said, my method in preaching Jesus Christ or my method in presenting the message of Jesus Christ is important. The methods he used would affect the people he ministered to. He knew that process determines product. And if he chose enticements, their faith would stand there. That is what they would want the most of. I'm convinced with so much of the ways that we are treating people that come through these doors like consumers, when the going gets tough, we're going to find out whether we have disciples or not. I think we might find out we don't have everything that we thought. It might reveal whether we have crowds or churches. Out of a desire for those people and a love for them, he pointed them to the spirit and the power of God. Where their faith would stand, according to Paul, was not determined entirely by the message. It was the methods that he used. Timeless preachers choose door number two. We've been focused on the same tools for a long time. And they will do what they ought to do. Young men, it's very tempting to choose door number one. You know why? Because it's easier. You know another reason it's tempting to choose door number one? Because you can borrow. You can borrow all the time. Door number two, you have to cultivate. If the Spirit and the power of God is going to be on your life, it takes everything that you've heard preached so far in this meeting a dependence upon Him, and a submission to Him, and realizing 
I'm going to take door number two every time. It's not necessarily as easy in that I can borrow all of this. But I'm going to cultivate it. This time with God on a daily basis that is significant. There can be, from a flesh standpoint, there can be elements of that that be challenging. And yet last night is made so clear. I appreciated that so much. Because the door that you choose affects the faith of the hearers that you have some responsibility for. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for church. Thank you for your word and the confidence that we can have in it. That if we simply use it the way that you intended us to use it, it'll still do just fine. I'm thankful we don't have to be Luddites. We don't have to be in rejection of new and creative. But I pray that those responsible for ministry in this room would Maybe understand a little bit of the spirit of still church. That we're not at a disadvantage at all with what you've given to us. May we make the best use of it so that we can do what you desire and what you would be pleased with to your honor and to your glory and for the good of the people that we speak to. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.